I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 8. We're uh, taking a little break from our journey through Revelation, and we're going to look at some psalms over the next several weeks. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. All right, let's see. Where is that in the Bible? About halfway, a little less. Let's give our attention to God's Word being read together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you are mindful of him, and the Son of Man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you join me in praying? What we need, uh, God, and instructed as we are by your word, is to, to be in awe of you. And Father, we ask that as we give our attention to your word, that you would increase our awe, increase our delight in you as a result of hearing from you. We need you, uh, God, we need you to speak to us. And we all know that a man can't accomplish what only you can do. But given that I am a mouthpiece of your word this morning, I ask for an extra measure of grace that you would speak your word and that we all, as we wait for you, uh, we all would expect to hear from you. So prepare us, mind and heart, so that we, as a result of hearing from you, are transformed by our minds being renewed with this word. And we ask all of this for the glory of Jesus. Amen. My message title I took right out of the text of this, uh, this psalm. What is man? What is man? It's a question, of course, that's asked here in, in verse 4. But by man, of course, we, I think we all understand he's not referring to adult males, but in a generic sense, the, the human race. Now, in scientific classifications, we humans are a subset, I am told, and I've read, of a, the taxonomic genus called Homo. Dictionary definition of Homo sapiens describes us as bipeds that evolved over 300,000 years ago from some greater apes, and we possess advanced cognitive abilities. Now, of course, I, I do not uh, believe this evolutionary theory this is anti-biblical, but setting that aside, 
as I looked up for definitions of what is man, I could find no explanation as to mankind's purpose, which is really what I take as what the psalmist is getting at here. According to biologists and evolutionists, we're just a biological accident. Now, Psalm 8, it's a psalm of David. It's, I want to say this at the outset, it's primarily about God. It's about what God has done in creation and how, how that is praiseworthy. But of course, we, not any other creature in creation, we are the recipients of this. We, we do learn what we are in relation to God. Now, of course, the psalmist here isn't interested in describing the unique physical and mental capabilities of humans. The question, what is man, is about meaning. And we could perhaps phrase it this way. Why man? Why man? That's what we're going to look at today from this psalm. So, from psalm, what is a man? What is man? Here is my outline as I take this from looking at this psalm. What is a man? A worshiper, first of all. Second, man is an observer. I'll get what I mean by that in a moment. And third, man is an image. That's what we've been created to be. And, of course, this is all, all to the glory of God. Well, first of all, let's talk about man as a worshiper. Now, I think we get this. I think we understand that worship is a very natural human inclination. We are inclined, we are driven to revere that which we find superior in relation to ourselves. So when you cheer for your favorite sports team or an accomplished musician or artist, that's a sort of a, a worship. And you do that because something they do is something you cannot do or cannot do the same way. Now, it's unlikely that you would give your applause to a mus musician who couldn't play or sing, right? You wouldn't do that. You, you wouldn't cheer for a sports team that never won a game or had no hope of it. I know there's some, you know, I understand what it's like to be a Toronto Maple Leafs fan. You know, we hope, we hope. There's always next year. But, but there's always some measure of skill that you can see in this assemblage of, of hockey players. Like, well, this is the one. This is the team. That's the guy. Now, like I said, we don't applaud those who have no skill or are not superior in some way. I mean, except maybe your children. But you do that because you love them and, and you're, you're applauding for what you hope they will become. You want them to reach their full potential. Now, there are a lot of reasons, of course, to honor and, and worship in a small W way, not in an ultimate sense, people for their accomplishments. But of course, there is one eternal infinitely peerless person who is worthy of our ultimate honor. And David in this psalm begins by addressing him by name and by his authority. O Lord, our Lord. These first four words in the psalm contain such profound, I would say, eternal truths that philosophers and theologians alike have written thousands upon thousands of pages just about what this means. And I say he addresses God by addressing him by name, O Lord, and you see in your Bibles that's all caps or small caps. See, his, his worship here 
acknowledges in responding to God with his divine name, Yahweh. That's how the translators determined to put that down. And if, if you know your Bibles, you know where that comes from. That, that's God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 3, 14. He, he says, I am who I am. And really that's a derived from as best as we can tell, a Hebrew form of the verb, to be. So it's God is saying, I exist. I am existence itself. And, and what, uh, there's a word that philosophers like to use to describe God's self-existence, his aseity, maybe you're familiar with that word. But in addressing uh, the Lord with his divine name, he says, you're the self-existent one. No one else is self-existent. No one else existed before time and will. So all of that that goes into that, God has never not been. He will never not be. He was and is and is to come. He transcends past, present, and future. And this means that God cannot grow. God cannot be diminished. He cannot change. He is a being that is infinitely higher than any other being. And all other beings exist because of God and nothing can exist apart from God. God's divine self-existence, his aseity. And in just uttering the name of the Lord, he acknowledges that. You know, I, some of you may be familiar with, with uh, well, maybe, maybe few of you, but I, I loved when I was studying philosophy, Anselm of Canterbury. He thought much, he thought much about how we can know God exists. And, and his pursuit was faith, he was a Christian, faith-seeking understanding, I mean, he didn't diminish scripture at all, but what he attempted to do is validate the scripture through reason. He said that God is a being that than which a greater cannot be thought. Now, you could spend hours just pondering that and how that makes sense. If this being exists in the mind, he must uh, exist in reality. You might recognize this as a kind of an ontological the theistic proof. But the, the point here is that just thinking about God's self-existence, the very thought that we have that thought, the very idea that we can conceive of such a thing has to come from somewhere. If the thing exists in mind, it must exist in reality. Or else where would the idea come from? I know other philosophers have shot that down, but I, I find that so compelling. God's self-existence is this glorious truth that no other being in all the universe has. And therefore, God is transcendent, far above. Well, next, he worships God for his sovereignty. And that's a word I chose to include here. A sovereign is someone who rules. Now, if, you, um, if you're aware of the, the monarchy in England, at least, you know, I guess there's been some attention there right, uh, lately uh, with King Charles ascending to the throne and his coronation. But he's called a sovereign, King Charles is a sovereign. He is sovereign over a limited domain, but he is considered a sovereign. Well, there's one whose domain has no limit. And when the psalmist addressed, O Lord, our Lord, Lord, all caps, Lord, uh, capital L, and then just lowercase, that word Adonai in the Hebrew means ruler, master. And, and given his nature as the self-existent one, Therefore, it follows then that he has all authority over everything. And this is his expression of worship and just uttering God's divine name. So, so the Lord, as our Lord, has 
absolute right to rule over all. And he does. That requires our full submission. So when we think of the Lord, our Lord, there isn't any posture that we can have before him that, that questions him or seeks to negotiate with him. He has the first and last word. His judgments are absolute and final. He also worships, as the third aspect of his worship, he worships God for his glory, his glory. That word glory, you'll see in the psalm, is, it says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. His majesty and glory, those, those are synonymous words very much related to another word that you find in the Old Testament, which is a, the idea of glory being a heaviness and a dignity. So what we're to understand here and what David gets is that the name, the name of the Lord, that's not merely a label to identify him. The name of the Lord includes his reputation. The name of the Lord includes his fame, and everything regarding his character, his works, his purposes, his promises, the majesty of his name is his greatness, the magnificence of his glory. And, and that reputation, uh, the psalmist further says, it is not contained in creation. You've set your glory above the heavens. It is far beyond what is observable, beyond creation. That's God's glory. Now in verse two, that's just verse one. In verse two, it's, it's like the psalmist is saying, now, this should be obvious. This should absolutely be obvious. How can you worship the Lord? How can you, how, how can you not worship the Lord is the question. How can you be blind to his truth? How can you miss the fact that Yahweh is supremely glorious and rules over all? And so he says it in this way in verse two, out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger the weakest of all mankind, infants, little children, they even get it. It's obvious to them. It's obvious to them. Now we're often told by humanists that the mind of the mature person, the mature man, the mature woman, the scientific mind cannot be religious. We're often told that. Cannot acknowledge something greater than ourselves. But I would say this, if skepticism about God, or sorry, if maturity brings that skepticism about God, then, then it's folly. And what it is is spiritual blindness. And, and it's ultimately a worship of self and human reason. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, uh, Matthew, the, the Gospel writer there, records what happened when the enemies of Jesus, they were, they were calling out, Hosanna, son of David. The, the, sorry, the enemies of Jesus noticed the children. I'm mixing this up. Noticed the children calling out, Hosanna, son of David. And they were, they were incensed by this. And what did Jesus do? He quoted this very psalm to them. This very psalm. And what he's saying is, look, these little children, they get what's so very self-evident saying to the religious leaders, and you effectively, and you deny me. Listen to the children. Listen to the, the nursing infants and the babies. So because worship is natural, 
if you don't worship God above all, it's because you don't truly believe that he is self-existent and sovereign over us. That's really what it comes down to. If someone does not worship God, it's because he does not believe that God is self-existent and rules. So, pause. Is your life marked by worship? I know there are a lot of distractions, right? There are a lot of things that can, that can grab our attention, that we can feel are, are, well, this is really important. Now, the Lord himself commands, you shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's commanded because it's the truest thing we can do. It is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. But the wise one says there is a God. And wisdom says, therefore, we must worship. And God knows. God knows that's what we need. We need to rightly orient ourselves with God. We need to see ourselves as small and and. And God is infinitely great and ruling over all. Jesus taught true worshipers, if you're going to worship the right object, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And just in case there's any sense that there's some option in this or, or you know, God is ambivalent towards whether we worship him or not, no, the verse continues, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. As I said, to give the Lord God our worship, that's the truest thing that we can declare. And that is the foundation for every other truth. Worship of God and keeping him first makes sense of what beauty actually is. There is beauty. The things that are beautiful to our eyes, the things that are beautiful to our ears, there only makes sense in light of the fact that God has revealed himself and he is the ultimate of beauty. So that which is good then corresponds to what God says is good. And this fact, I would suggest, brothers and sisters in Christ, gives meaning to every other endeavor under the sun. God is to be worshipped and we, what is man? We are Worshippers, worshippers who direct that to God. Well, second, man is an observer. Verses three and four, we see that there. Sorry, I think that's just three, but anyway. So verse three. Now, what we are, uh, have you ever thought about this? What are we without our senses? Thought what it would be like not to have any senses at all. What, what does it mean to even exist in this mortal realm and this physical realm without any senses at all. We understand this. We are, we are embodied creatures and live in this physical world guided in large measure by what we hear, by what we see, what we feel, taste, smell. It's really very hard to imagine how we could know anything at all without our senses. Now, because of how God made us, what we observe, the things we experience through our senses, that drives us. It drives us to know where those things come from, how they were designed, 
We all get this. The scientific method, if rightly understood, is simply a process by which we understand what we experience through our senses, right? But we're not merely physical creatures. We are also embodied spiritual creatures who understand that beyond the realm of the physical, the fact that which is available to our senses, there is a meta, above, beyond physical realm that transcends and defines and gives meaning to the things that we sense. Um, I like philosophy, but uh, you're familiar with Greek philosopher Plato. He was no God-fearer in any sense, but he, he was grasping for this, to try to make sense of, of, of the things that he experiences in the physical realm, and he posited this idea of, a, of another realm called the forms. If you've read philosophy, you know all about that. We, we long for this meaning to make sense of the horizontal plane. We, we need something that's transcendent. And in verses three and four, the psalmist first looks up. And I think you, you can imagine, so David being a, a tending sheep, what he was before he was anointed to be king. Perhaps this is from that time or, or maybe he was just reflecting back on how it was. Imagine the night sky. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. Now, if you've been out in, you know, beyond the lights of the city and all you have is the light from the stars and the moon, there's something so awesome. If you just laid on the ground and stare at it on a clear night, there's a, a beauty that is just, it's awe-inspiring. I know we, we see the stars and we just take them for granted. Oh, there's the Big Dipper and all that. But if you just stare at it, how could this be? There's no question for David as to who put them there. Now, what David could see with the naked eye, we now know, is just a tiny fraction of what is out there. Astronomers and, and astrophysicists have calculated that there are two trillion galaxies. I read this. And they've observed in what they believe is to a radius of 4.5 billion light years. I can't make sense of these numbers. They're big. That's a lot of galaxies, that's a lot of space. That's at least what they think they know. It's staggering, absolutely staggering. And all of this is the work of God's fingers. David writes in another psalm, the heavens declare the glory of, the God, of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. How could this be? Look around creation. How could any of it have come into existence apart from the finger of God? Now beyond the vastness and the complexity and intricacy of all that is beyond our world, there's still as well, and, and David doesn't mention this, but he maybe he's touching on it, just the wonder of even biological systems, including human life. So after looking up, this is where we get to verse four, David then considers, what is man? That's the question I've put forward today. What is man? What is man, Enosh, that you are mindful of him, and the son of man, Ben Adam, that you care for him? Now, part of that care is that unlike any other creatures in creation, man has this self-awareness, sentience, an understanding of his own existence in time and space, a sense of the past, a sense of the present, and a sense of the future, 
ability to conceptualize that which is transcendent, even if many deny it. This care that God has means that, that man's steps are ordained. It means that man has purpose. Man functions unlike the animals with, with a sense of God so that he can lift his gaze beyond the horizontal and look up. The writer of the Apostle Paul writing in Romans talks about what happens when you deny it. But he explains, he explains what can be known about God is plain. This is revealed in creation because God has shown it. His invisible attributes, namely his internal power and his divine nature, these have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we exist in our world, we experience through our senses, but we are observers. Observers not of our own accomplishments, but observers of the accomplishments of God. And every time there's a new scientific discovery, any time we find out something we didn't know before, it's like peeling back the layers of the onion that reveal all that God has done in, in an infinite way to, to, to perplex us with what he has done, to overwhelm us with what he has done. And that should drive us as we observe the world around us, brings me to my third, third aspect. We're observers, we're, we're worshipers, we're observers of the world around us, understanding that comes from God. And what is man? Man is an image, an image. And I often wonder, and maybe, maybe you'd agree with this, that we've become somewhat of a self-obsessed culture. Just think back to when photography first came out. On, and we had to capture everything on film. A lot of you are too young to remember a day like that, but I think film still exists in some places. But what did we do with those? We, it was expensive, so we took pictures of family gatherings, family portraits, scenery we wanted to remember when we were on vacation. But now things have changed, haven't they? With our smart devices, we still do that, but we take a lot of pictures of ourselves. A lot. No, I don't do that, but but isn't that it? Like selfies. Now think about my house. I think I have eight mirrors, I counted. Well, we need them, right? We need our mirrors. I, I can't shave without cutting myself without a mirror. I don't think I can properly tie a tie on the rare occasions when I put one on without a mirror. And I want to make sure that when I leave the house, there's no dirt on my face or, or that my shirt's properly tucked in. So, so we need the mirror. But I think we are so very interested in our own image that I was challenged by this psalm. Whose image are we to be more concerned about? And David reflects on what is man, he writes, verse 5. Yet, speaking to the Lord, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Heavenly beings, that's Elohim in the plural small g gods, and crowned him with glory and honor. You might recognize this from the New Testament in Hebrews that quotes there the same verse translated from the Greek, uh, Greek version of the Old Testament, translated there as angels. 
And I think about these, these heavenly beings, these Elohim, these small g gods. They're probably the same as that, that heavenly council that we find in the beginning of Job. They're Ben Elohim, the sons of the gods. But whatever these gods are, they are created beings, but they have in some sense an exalted place in the council of God. They are doing his bidding in some unique way. They serve his purposes. They have a high place of responsibility in his council. And David understands that God has put man in this exalted place. God, the creator of all things, has given man this place of responsibility over creation. Amazingly, you, verse 6, have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his, that is man's feet. I mean, think about all things. Is there anything excluded? All things means all things. And he gets specific, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. So livestock, wild animals, birds that fly around in the sky, fish in the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. It's poetic language. But he's saying, look, whatever you see in the observable world, that's your responsibility. Every creature, every created thing, and what God has done is give man, God being sovereign over all, then says, I make you man. You are to have sovereignty in some sense, not unbounded, but specific dominion over a specific realm, the earth. That's an exalted place. That's a massive responsibility. So, what God has done, he's given man the privilege of participating in creation and its rule. And David marvels that God made man to be like God, sort of, kind of, but yet put him in a place that is a little lower than the gods. Now, I don't doubt that, that in writing this and is reflecting on the glory of God, that he, he remembered the, the creation story. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, God is the one who made everything out of nothing, but man is to take what God has made and make more. He is to be a pro-creator. And what God accomplished with a word, man, by God's design, accomplishes through male and female together so the creation story and God blessed them the man and the woman the man and the woman God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every other living thing that moves on the earth and just a side note here we most faithfully represent the image of God when we submit to his supreme authority and his design in all things, whether male or female. And that distinction matters. See, the problem today, and this is constantly being foisted on us is the, by the anti-biblical culture, is that any individual should be affirmed in what he or she says, I am what I say I am, right? But if we think about that, it's really the height of arrogance. It is the height of self-worship. 
For someone to say, I am what I say I am, and you must affirm that. No, only Yahweh, only Yahweh can say, I am that I am. But really, that's just an extreme example, very much in-your-face example of what happened when man abdicated his responsibility to properly rule over creation according to God's design and within the boundaries that God had set. And we know the story, Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit. They marred the very image of God in them. And so every time you and I disobey God and do things our own way, we're proving once again how the image of God has been marred. That is what we are doing. Now the, the psalmist here has a very optimistic view. He doesn't mention any of that. He sees himself as one who is submitted to the Lord. Oh Lord, our Lord. So he's already in a position that acknowledges who God is and presumably has rested in God's promise to, to bring him into a relationship with himself. But because man is a little lower than the God, small g, because man bears the imago dei, the image, image of God, the Lord determined because of that, to rescue us from our futility. And the only way, the only way that the image of God can be restored is by the Son of God taking the image of man. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians, that Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In his life and in his death, Jesus bore our image. But he did so flawlessly. He took on our image but proved how it should be done flawlessly. So what happens is, when you put your faith in him, what that does is begins that restoration. When you put your faith in Christ, it begins that restoration process of, of putting back into us, slowly and progressively over time, restoring the pure image of God that we're meant to have. Now that happens first spiritually. Spiritually, it happens within. The Holy Spirit takes residence in you. You become a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Christ bears our image in death so that we can bear his image in life. But when Christ, uh, then when Christ returns, I should say, we will bear that image physically. It's not done. Where we are today, you bear the image of Christ spiritually and you're growing in that if you're a believer in Jesus today. But we look forward today, to that day when we will bear that image physically Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, referring to Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And that's in the day of resurrection. So what do we do now? What do we do now with this? Knowing whose image we bear and knowing then what God has done to restore that image through Christ Restore what we polluted by our own sin. We are called now to live out the mandate given to us at creation. Not by being obsessed with our own image, but rather to be consumed with reflecting the image of God. That should be our, our entire 
the occupation of our lives in this earth. How do I bear the image of God? It has been made possible and actualized in you by the death of Christ and his resurrection when you put your faith in him. So what do we do now? Well, we may be right now a little lower than the gods, but unlike them, unlike this council, we are his children. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And just to put the cherry on the top, fellow heirs with Christ. And really, there's no greater, higher place to be. And we do not get there by exalting ourselves, but by humbling ourselves. In Jesus' humility, he went to the cross. And we look to that in faith. And in our humility, we humble ourselves before him and say, we need what you did for me, for us. I need what you did, Jesus, so that I could be counted righteous in God's sight. So now, in light of who you are, if you are in Christ today, this is what we're called to do. We are called to be imitators of God as beloved children. And we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we exist to bear the image of God. Why man? Why did God put us on the earth to look like him? And while we messed it up in Christ, that opportunity has been restored to us. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's live like that. We live like that by walking in love. We live like that by loving our neighbors as ourselves. We live like that by even loving our enemies and praying for those that persecute us. We live like that by by putting on the character of Christ. We live like that by fleeing youthful lust. We live like that by putting on Christ and making no provision for the flesh. That's what we are called to do, brothers and sisters. Well, the psalm ends. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And that majesty must be acknowledged by us because we've been created to worship And what enhances our worship is that we observe all that God has made and see the works of his fingers in creation. Putting us in a place of awe and reverence before the Lord. And then as a result of that, seeking to fulfill our role as image bearers, reflecting his character so that all glory and honor ultimately goes back to him. May that be us today. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is majestic. Your glory is above the heavens. We see your glory and the way in which you created everything. And Father, you've put this, you've created us in this place of of importance in your plan, not so that we could be proud about it, but that so that we could be humbled by it. So God, give us the grace through Jesus, your Son, and the Spirit who you've caused to dwell in us 
to truly live out what it means to be your child, to be an heir, joint heir with Christ, and to fulfill our responsibilities as image bearers of Jesus, image bearers in Jesus of you, O God. So God, strengthen us for that. We know that this power is not in us. It comes from you and from your word. May, may we be those people in the world today. For Jesus' sake, amen.